This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. We were going to chat about this yesterday. A lot of stuff happened yesterday. We had to get to. We got squeezed for time. We were thrilled to have Dave Anderchuk along. We were thrilled with all the guests. So we couldn't get to it. But this happened over the weekend. And I know a lot of people were talking about it. I know it was discussed on this station a bit yesterday, maybe today too. I'm not sure. And it's the idea that Tom Jackson, City Councilor Tom Jackson, and some others are now saying, based on what's seemingly happening every weekend now, more than once a weekend it seems, with people having to be rope lifted out of the waterfalls, Albion Falls, wherever else, every weekend, that we should now be charging those who have to be rescued not necessarily with the fee or with the cost of the manpower to rescue them, but there should be some kind of fee for trespassing or for whatever you want to call it, for breaking the law, for getting in there, for getting yourself in trouble. There should be some kind of fee. Now, this has this has received, I think, a fair amount of positive reception. I think a lot of people are saying, come on, this is getting ridiculous, that every single weekend... We're hearing about one or two or three people that have somehow, somehow fallen into one of these waterfalls. I I mean, I still don't quite understand how this many people can be this clumsy. I really can't. And if you were one of the people and you're saying, wait a second, I wasn't clumsy. If you fell into a waterfall, you're clumsy or you're careless. Choose which word you want to use. I don't care. Take your pick. I'll I'll leave it with you to decide which word it is. But the reality is if you're falling into a waterfall, you're doing something wrong. Uh, the, The only way that's not the case, I suppose, is if A, you step on a patch of dirt and all the dirt gives out and you slide 30 feet down the hill and fall in. I suppose then we can cut you some slack because that wasn't really bad planning. It was poor misfortune. Or if... I don't know, your dog went running towards the edge out of your control and you went running to try and save your dog and you slipped and fell. I mean, I, I, look, I'm, trying to, I'm grasping at straws here to find some explanation for how it is that these people continue to fall in. I don't get it. I, I mean, I really don't get it. And the thing that I especially don't get is that some of the photographers of The Spectator were, or one of them was down there on the weekend getting pictures after the latest rope rescue and literally minutes, minutes after the person is pulled out by the rescuers, there are people standing on the ledge, on the edge, on the rim, taking selfies of themselves. Clearly, this city has more than its fair share of contenders for the Darwin Awards. If you don't know what the Darwin Awards are, go look it up. Clearly, we are not a city of fast learners. If you are watching the ambulance and the fire trucks drive away after someone has been rescued and you say, wow, look at all those emergency vehicles. Let me go stand on the lip and get a picture of myself, maybe with them in the background. You are clearly not catching on quick enough. But anyway, that's the background. You know the background, right? I mean, you've heard about this. And so, as I say, now Councillor Tom Jackson and others are saying there should be some kind of fine, some kind of penalty, some kind of deterrent besides signs, besides having to put up giant fences. We don't want to put up giant fences all around the waterfalls, do we? I mean, that looks horrible. These are supposed to be natural wonders. 
Let's do something that would be a deterrent. Let's make it a fine that would be enough of a deterrent that people wouldn't do it. And I don't know about you. I'm all in favor of that. I'm a hundred percent behind that. Cause as I say, other than some highly unusual circumstances, which I can't imagine could happen more than once in an eon. These people who are falling into waterfalls are bringing this upon themselves. Let's be honest. They are. These, this is stupidity that leads to tragedy often. So I got no problem with finding or penalizing somehow these people. But here's my question as we follow this up. And I want to hear from you. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Why are we stopping at this? If we are going to penalize people for stupidity, if we're going to give tickets for abject moronity, that you've done something that you know has a strong likelihood of causing you to be injured or to require emergency services to come to your aid or medical attention that is going to drain our healthcare system, If we're going to penalize them for this, why are we not penalizing people the same way and giving tickets for other acts of great stupidity that also require emergency help and medical care and a drag on our medical system? If you jaywalk and get hit by a car, maybe now jaywalking is officially technically against the law. I, I would love to know, and I don't, I would love to know if anybody ever gets charged with jaywalking after they've been hit by a car. Because I'm willing to bet you probably that if someone has been hit by a car, that the police or whoever else is going to say, well, they kind of, they paid the price. They don't need a fine. They're already paying their fine. And I'm not urging you to go and run down jaywalkers. That's not the point at all. But if you do something stupid that you know has a strong likelihood of requiring our city's emergency personnel and doctors and everyone else to be involved, should you not be ticketed? Why are we stopping with falling into waterfalls? That is just one example. There's lots of other examples where we should look at them and say, you got to be responsible. And if you're not responsible, you're going to pay for it. Dom joins me now. Dom, how are you tonight? Hey, not too bad. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I, I agree with you. I think that uh, they should be fined. I think they should be fined. And, and I think it's a way for the city to generate revenue. I think this is a great revenue generation scheme. Dom, what about the idea? Now, again, the waterfalls is top of mind right now because we apparently have a long lineup of people who are interested in falling into a waterfall. I don't quite get it. Maybe you put that on your resume somewhere or you tell people, hey, look what I did. But would you be in favor then of taking this concept and extending it to other areas of great stupidity within our culture, within our society, to say, if you do this, we're going to charge you for that as well. I agree with you about jaywalking. Do I think uh, if you get hit by a car and you jaywalked, then you, you, you've paid enough of a fine. You think so? I don't think you'll do it again. I would, I would hope you wouldn't, but by the same token, I would hope you wouldn't fall into a waterfall twice. Yeah, but I think what happens is with, uh, with jaywalking, uh, yeah, I, I see it being done enough times, but because uh, uh, I, I mean I, I'm a motorist and I've seen people cut in front of me when, when and, and you know they, they shouldn't be doing that. But they're like it's, it's, it's a two-way thing. Like if I see the person, he's doing something stupid, then 
it's incumbent on, upon me because I'm driving a vehicle that, that's potentially a weapon to, to be careful. But if you're foolish enough to, you know, like you said, want to take a selfie as close as possible to, to the edge of a waterfall and you fall in, then, yeah, definitely I think that you should be paying a fine. And maybe maybe that's why there's more more people falling into waterfalls because we didn't have selfies. <laughs> maybe maybe that's right. Don, listen, I appreciate the call. Thank you. Well, good night. Um. All right. So we've got Dom saying, "Yeah, we should be penalizing people," and I agree. I agree with Tom Jackson. I agree with Dom. I agree with those people, and I think there are an awful lot of them that say, "Yes, yes, there should be some kind of penalty, not because we want to." cause you to suffer financially after you've already fallen and been rescued and have two broken legs and a broken back. See, where I disagree with Dom is when he says, well, if you've been hit by a car because you're jaywalking, you've probably served enough, you've probably experienced enough pain and you're not going to do it again. Well, that's no different than falling into the waterfall and breaking your legs or worse. I'm looking at this saying, if you want to stop people from doing, some people, some people, There are people, let's be honest, there are people that you could make the fine a billion dollars for doing something and stupidity is just part of them. Maybe not a lot of us, but there are just people out there who aren't going to grasp the fact that you can't be stupid and that stupidity comes with a cost, not necessarily to you, although often, but it also costs a lot of money to the city and to other things. So even if you were to say, we are going to find you. There are still going to be people who do it. But the fact is, maybe some people, if you start saying, okay, jaywalking, hmm, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a big fine. And if you get hit by a car, I'm sorry, you get hit by a car and you get fined. We can find all kinds of things in our society where stupidity is running rampant and maybe the deterrent of a large penalty would help someone stop doing it. Mario joins me on the line. Mario, how are you tonight? I'm not bad, Scott. How are you doing? Excellent. What do you think about this? Well, you know, I think, I'm. first off, I'm old. I'm over 60. And I think the whole concept of accountability is from my generation. Uh, I mean, a few weeks ago, I happened to be driving by a Waterloo High School, and a bunch of kids were jaywalking across, and I stopped for them, and had my window rolled down, and I mentioned to them that they were jaywalking and they could get hit by a car doing that, and their response was, I'll sue. And it uh, really kind of made me think that there's a total different approach to accountability between a younger person and an older person. Well, maybe. There's also probably the fact that that line has been said by so many people over the years that uh, it becomes a default position. But okay, so here's my point, though. If a city city or a region or whatever you wanted to say puts into law the fact that if you do this, there is a fine, they can still sue you, but they're also going to be paying a penalty. I'm hoping. See, my idea is why stop here? Let's deter people from doing these things that hopefully will make many of them, not all of them. You're absolutely right. It's not going to stop all of them. Some will just say, I have a right or I, whatever, but it might stop some people from doing these things. I would agree with you. I, I do think it's an uphill battle and uh, I think it'd be a good uphill battle to wage. M- Mario, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. I take care. Let me go to Frank. Frank, how are you tonight? I'm fi- very well. Very well. I'm, I'm listening to these all these solutions that people have been talking about the last few days, Scott. 
And I want to ask you this. If you owned a chemical plant yes. okay, that had uh, some lethal items in it, um, in, concealed in tanks, and uh, what would you do to prevent people from going in there to find out what you have in there for one thing or even trying to do something with it? Well, it, what was the first I, I know you where you're going to go with this. I would say that if I own a chemical plant, I am going to put up a gate and I'm going to lock the gate. And if you climb over the gate to get in, then I would argue that you are at your own risk for doing that because I've taken every reasonable precaution to try and protect against you doing that. Now, and you're going to say, I think if I'm guessing where you're going to go, you're going to say, well, we should have some sort of deterrent up around the waterfalls to prevent people from getting to the edge. Would that be a good guess? Fence it. Fence it. Look at Scott, the the former caller of the mayor just said that we're in a generation and you agree that people are just defying. I'm going to sue you, but that's if you still are alive. You know, I mean, don't think one step further. You know, preventatives are there. I mean, put a fence around their barbed wire. People complain, say, well, you've had this many, and they'll show them right up front injuries and a death. People just don't want to listen. I'm sorry. On the highway, uh, if people are getting killed on a highway, uh, you got to do something about it, too. And we're talking so much about it, but we're not reacting. Frank, here's, uh, the, here's the reason I disagree with you. And, and your, point is not, uh, your point is not ridiculous. I simply am so loath to put up a fence that ruins the what we have, which is a, a unique thing to go and see that people who are, are responsible should be able to observe and enjoy. I hate the idea that we're going to have to... Now, maybe the point comes when we do have to do that, but I would love to take the shot first at seeing if this kind of deterrent... And you know what? Have some police there, and if you want to get close enough, he's going to grab you right away and say, here's a ticket for you for a thousand bucks. Let's see if that works first, but let's extend that beyond just the waterfalls. Let's do it to other areas of our society, other areas of our city where rampant stupidity happens all the time and where things you do not only will hurt you, but they'll cost us a lot of money. But before you let me go on this, once upon a time, you could go into the Royal Botanical Gardens here free, just, just walk in and enjoy it. There happened to be instances where people were, were, were damaging things in there, they were abusing it, and all of a sudden we had to pay. Now that's been curtailed to a certain degree, but that's not a very good comparison. There are risk takers going into those falls. And I, again, you know, it, it's not a nice thing, like you said, to put a fence in. It doesn't have to be a weird-looking fence, just a preventative. People don't listen. You've got to be the parent on them. If they're going to, even they're going to be adults, you've got to say, you're not getting in here. Because who's paying for this? The fire department, you and I, and us, and, and people are, are, are losing their lives. It, it, this is very critical, uh, Scott. It's not an instance where you don't want to uh, destroy a nice scenic area, but it's an instance where people are, are at a great risk here and they're and they're they're getting in trouble i appreciate the call frank thanks for the uh, thanks for the thoughts You're uh the other way you can do it is put up signs that saying coyotes area hungry coyotes roaming and actually let's let's let loose a few coyotes by the waterfall then we'll see how many people want to get to the edge let's do something even if a fine isn't going to deter people maybe the possibility of being eaten or bitten or something i i mean i don't know what you do but i don't think that waterfalls are the only place where we see stupidity. I think there should be a start. And I, I, if you are a regular listener to this program, you know I am not one who is urging more and more and more and more government intervention and these kind of things. I'm not talking about cracking down. Like, 
let's say that you accidentally step off. I mean, I don't want to have every single thing lead to a fine, but there are certain things that are so egregiously, obviously stupid and likely to lead to some kind of injury or situation that I don't think it's a, it's ridiculous to consider it, to consider it starting with the waterfalls and let's see where it goes from there. If you still had something to say on this and you couldn't get through, Radley at 900CHML.com. Would love to hear from you on this one. I know it's a topic that's been talked about a lot. I know you've heard it a lot on here. But I look at this and I just think to myself, you know, I, I, I don't think this is the only place. It's a start, but I don't think it's the only place. I don't think this is the end of the conversation either. Let's use this as a jumping off point. Reasonable. Re- reasonable people should be able to have this discussion without going to one extreme that someone says, well, if you're going to find people for this, you got to find every single person who buys a can of pop because of the sugar content will give them diabetes. No, that's not the reasonable discussion. There is a reasonable way to have this discussion without someone taking it to the nth degree and making it stupid. Let's have that discussion. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Turn on your TV here or listen to the radio or read the paper anywhere in North America, really, and there, there's no shortage of stuff to talk about, for sure. There is all kinds of politics and all kinds of other things going on that we can easily get wrapped up in. But what seems to be missing or what we seem to not be catching on to is that there are parts of the world headed for what the Washington Post is describing as possibly the greatest humanitarian crisis since World War II. That's how they're describing it. This is, this is something that on its face, at least from what we're hearing, sounds like it has the potential to be truly catastrophic. And it's a, it's a dim story I'm gonna, we're going to talk about for the next few minutes. It's not exciting. It's bleak. But it's really, really important. Because according to the Post, tw- and this is from the United Nations statistics, 20 million people in South Sudan, Nigeria, Yemen, and Somalia, 20 million people will be facing famine in the coming months, and they expect that hundreds of thousands of children could die of starvation. This is, it's, it's incredibly serious, and it's incredibly underplayed right now. Chances are you've not heard of this, or at least not very much. Most haven't. That doesn't make you uninformed. It makes you part of the West. Uh, the statistics that the president of Save the Children and the United Nations reel off say that 1.4 million children are at risk of starvation in those four countries. 600,000 could die in the next three to four months. In Yemen, 17 million people are hungry. Only 3.3 million are being provided with full food rations. At least 6.8 are supposed to be getting it or need it, according to the United Nations. Plus... A cholera epidemic has broken out, affecting more than 200,000 people so far, with another child being infected with cholera every 35 seconds. This is, this is horrible. How have we not heard about all this? Well, to help us walk through this, Brian Stewart was the longtime senior correspondent for The National. For years, he reported from all around the world. Uh, you can, in fact, draw a line from his reporting of the Ethiopian famine in the 1980s to the Live Aid concert that raised millions and millions of dollars 
to help deal with that. He was in some ways responsible for that happening due to his coverage. He joins me now. Brian, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, you have, you've been out there around the world and you have seen every horrible, horrible thing that you could possibly have seen, in, including famines. Um, you know what can happen. When you start hearing the numbers that the United Nations and Save the Children and other groups are talking about, do you think they are just throwing out a lot of hyperbole to raise money, or do you believe, you know what, no, this really could happen? Oh, no, it is absolutely happening. And the great, great tragedy before us is by the time the world declares a famine, it's already, in many cases, too late for millions of people, because that's the the last category almost of human suffering. And when you get that uh, declaration of famine, you're losing hundreds of thousands of children and and others. Uh, This is very much, I think, the worst humanitarian crisis potential catastrophe since World War II. Uh, The statistics which you, uh, you read out are almost numbing, but they're very factual. The, the agencies that are putting out these numbers are extraordinarily accurate, very, very professional. Uh, there's no hype in this whatsoever. So I, I can kind of understand. I mean, 1980-whatever it was, mid-1980s, uh, it wasn't that long ago, but it was long enough ago that technology was different, the Internet didn't really exist, cell phones, all those kind of things. It is a much smaller world now, really. How can this happen again in 2017? I could get it in the 80s, sort of. How could it happen now? Yes, and I must say, after the famine in Ethiopia, we I thought very confidently we'd never see such a thing again, because there would be early warning systems uh, set up that would prevent that kind of thing taking us by surprise. And in fact, the United Nations and these great agencies out there in the field have been shouting from the rooftops for months and months and months to governments and and the population of the world that a horrible disaster was approaching. I think the explanation is uh, is that governments, media, and people are simply overwhelmed by catastrophe and crisis these days. We have a kind of crisis of crises where we're a vortex of spinning news 24-7 coming at us with one disaster after another, Syria, Iraq, terror attacks, political upheavals in the world, uh, is, is basically overwhelming our ability to absorb so many things coming at us at once. I think governments have been horrible in letting down the needs here, but I think we have to realize that we're at a, you know, at a time when there are almost 70 million homeless and refugees in the world right now. Many parts of the world are facing crises all the time. And I think this basically just got lost in the, the, the other headlines that hmm. were hitting us day by day. Which seems incredible when you're talking about the numbers you're talking about. Yeah. But um, There's also, I think, an element of, I, I hate to say donor fatigue, because there hasn't even been that much donor donation going on of late. But there is a kind of fatigue with horror stories coming out of what many of the failed states of the world. They're estimated to be 50 failed states. These are among those that have the the worst inbuilt problems right now of conflicts going on, uh, along with weather catastrophes as well. And, and, and people, I think, have a strong sense that they, they probably 
a lot of people have a strong sense they don't want to hear much anymore about this. I think it's mm. terribly tragic because by by turning our backs on this, we don't put enough in development aid. We don't do enough for long-term assistance to these countries that could possibly get them out of this failed state they're in now. Well, something else that, I, that really concerns me is that w- during the Ethiopian famine, and you just alluded to the fact that by the time the famine arrives, it's almost out of control. So it's now you're in crisis mode already. But when it happened in the 80s, and credit to you and your cameraman and the images that you were able to send back were so shocking that it jolted people and really all of a sudden made them wake up. And and you were on this show a couple of years ago and we were chatting about Live Aid back there with the 30th anniversary. There was a particular young girl that was so, her, her image was so stark that it changed the donations at that Live Aid concert. Suddenly people saw that on the screen and they all started going to their wallets because, holy cow, I can't believe what I'm seeing. And what worries me, Brian, now is we see so many stark, horrific images in pop culture, in the media and everything all the time. Can we still be stunned? Can we still be startled? I think you put your finger right on a major, major problem. I think we're losing our capacity to be as startled and as stunned. Uh, not only in popular culture, but you know, we have the crises of barrel bombs and chemical weapons in Syria putting forth horrifying images of dying children. We see so many horrors now. Whereas back in Ethiopia in 8045, video was kind of new, satellite coverage was new, and these images seemed to be coming in almost into the living room. And that people were just rocked by that. Now I think uh, they're, they're less affected. I think people are still as generous and as kind. It just takes different forms now. You know, they, they reply instantly to the victims of a terror attack in a major city and come with this outpouring of great emotion. But I think there's a numbing effect to too many horrible images coming in from around the world, and that just numbs the senses after a while. Very few of us, and, and I suppose this is something we should all be thankful for, but very few of us are ever going to see a real famine up close. When you were there, when you would be walking in Ethiopia through the feeding camp, describe what really stands out to you when you see that up close and in person. Well, I think the main thing that struck me is I couldn't quite believe what I was seeing. It was like being in a a nightmare. You you figure, am I going to wake up from this? But you'd walk into these feeding camps, and the thing that visually struck me the most, they looked like concentration camps, except that you know the, the staff that were there were desperately trying to save lives not take lives. There weren't towers towers up to keep people in and barbed wire. Everybody was doing all they could and even having nervous breakdowns and the stress of helping people. But it looked like an almost black and white image of, a, of an end of the world scenario. People were dying literally at one's feet. Uh, I went into one camp where a week before they were losing 20 a week. The day I arrived, they were losing 100 a week. Most of those were children. So funerals were going on nonstop. You saw children so emaciated you didn't believe it possible. They could even exist to the, the, the next day. And um, at that stage, one thought the world had totally forgotten. These people would never respond. And uh, it was the images of that we were seeing that, in fact, did cause the world to respond. But I thought for a while I almost lost hope. I almost thought... It's too far gone. We're, we're going to lose. 
Red Cross were warning we were, we, they could lose $7 million. In the end, International Relief saved $6 million. But we still saw in northern Ethiopia over those weeks basically a million people die. And when you describe it, it's very clear, at least to me, that it's still very vivid for you. But you were there. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, again, I go back to that p- thing about can we be stunned or startled or, or shocked if you if you had not been there, like before you got there, Brian, did you have the same feeling or the same understanding of how horrible these things were? I, I don't think anyone could, could no, they? You, your, your mind just can't make that leap. Uh, I, I expected, in fact, I, I psychologically trained myself for weeks before going in, trying to get braced for it, be fit for it. And nothing really kind of prepares you for that. It's like going into a war for the first time. You're, you're never prepared for how loud it is and horrible. Uh, a famine is just seems overwhelming, the numbers that are pouring out of the hillside, basically uh, dying along the roads. And you have these remarkably heroic aid workers who are there just giving up their, the last ounce of strength they've got to try and help. One of the things I would underline now, the aid agencies in the field are so much better prepared now. They do an outstandingly brilliant job. And any aid they get for financial and the rest of it, they can save multiple millions. They have the right kind of uh, emergency foods and tenting. They they can put up much better camps for refugees than they could back in 84. So there's a lot of infrastructure there to save lives if only they get enough funding, which they're not getting at the moment. Uh, what I was reading today, again, in the Washington Post from the United Nations, is that the West is doing a lot the west, we have nothing i maybe we do I, the west has is is giving lots of money i think it was 1.2 billion from the states alone towards aid in these four countries it's not like it's being forgotten by the west and it makes for an uncomfortable question though brian and that is where's the rest of the world in this a good question i mean the un has, has said back in i think it was march that they needed 5.5 billion that would be canadian dollars by this month, they've received basically a third of that. Uh, countries like the U.S. and Canada, though I think I'm not sure the U.S. is up to its past efforts, but uh, some traditional countries have been responding very well. The U.K. is always a leader. Um, Canada's doing a lot. The rest of the world should be responding more, but I think countries tend to fall into what's expected of them. I must say, a lot of the, like Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, are helping in certain areas. But remember, they've got their own crises in Yemen, in Syria, in Iraq. Turkey is doing an awful lot for uh, desperate cases there. I mean, I think it's housing three million refugees. But they feel kind of totally absorbed in their own crisis. They may not be, of course, looking south to other crises outside their immediate concern. I think Asia could do a lot more, quite frankly. There's more countries are starting to get involved in this kind of stuff. But clearly, a failure like this, and let's see what it is, this is a major international failing of the nation states and the whole global community uh, responding to this, because it's what's coming in is too little and too late, despite months and months of warning. But I hope, I would hope this will shock large uh, parts of the rest of the world to say we can't let this happen again. Frankly, I'm not hopeful they're going to respond that way if 
we're just overwhelmed by the number of crises we are on a daily basis. So what happens if it does live up to or live down to the billing that it's getting right now? What happens if two or three months from now, 20 million people are faced with a huge famine and we've got tens of thousands dying every week or every month? Yeah. Uh, what happens is I think people just become almost even more numbed. I think there needs to be a spectacular international leader on this. I I was kind of crossing my fingers hoping Canada would take the kind of lead this time that uh, Brian Mulroney in Canada took, actually, in 1984. He did a spectacular job, and his government did, not only heading a relief to Ethiopia, but lobbying the White House and Number 10 Downing Street, getting other countries behind. I do think that this is an area that our current prime minister could be out there perhaps doing more. I think this is one of those areas that Canada uh, really does very well when it steps up, and I think this is the time to step up. I mentioned one other thing. Getting aid to the countries is, is one thing. Distributing it is another because the security situation is so desperate there. We may have to be talking about new peacekeeping missions mm. going in an emergency basis to try and even get food to the desperately needed. Brian, I have just one more minute. Um, You and we know that the media and led by you back again in Ethiopia played a huge role in changing and getting this thing turned around because you were out there and you got the stories back here. So people became aware. We know there have been massive cuts to media. We know that media is very tied up in things closer to home. Will this story, do you think, get covered properly? I don't know about the rest of it. I will have to say that CBC did a spectacular series recently with the Margaret uh, Evans from London went into South Sudan, and there were, it was a really powerful series. So it's got some attention, certainly in Canada. The rest of the media, they've cut foreign bureaus. They're less pure on the ground. Uh, I think this is a, 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 a real challenge now for the, the media to get people in there, but that's what they should be doing, getting live coverage coming out of these countries now and uh, immediately. Brian Stewart, former chief senior correspondent for The National, uh, was on the ground 30-some years ago in Ethiopia and really was one of the main people who changed that and got that change and led that fight. And uh, you should be very proud of that even all these years later, and I'm I'm sure you are. Brian, thanks for doing this today. Well, thank you very much. Nice talking to you. It is, um, what, what, what do you say to that? The numbers, the, the the scope of what we're talking about that we don't even know about. That's the thing that's so startling. We are hearing so little about this that most people, and I don't think, again, I'm not insulting anybody by saying if you don't know about this, most people don't know about this. It's not just you. It's startling that we could be talking about 20 million people affected and we don't hardly know anything about it. Make a point of reading and listening and watching some stuff about it. Educate yourself so you know. It's important. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Again, you are going to be hearing O Canada a lot, I expect. If you, I mean, unless you're hiding, unless you're trying not to hear it, at the 150th birthday of this country, you are going to be hearing it a lot. So I started thinking, I wonder if I wonder how close our anthem is today to the start, because a couple things. First of all, you'll recall that 
within the last couple, within the last year or so, there's been a big debate about whether or not we should change the lyrics from all thy sons command to all of us command. And the argument against it has been, well, we can't tinker with tradition. And I thought, oh, that must mean that the song we sing today is the same song that has always been sung as O Canada. Well, let's go through it. Because the original, the original original, the pre-original, the uber original, O Canada, was not called O Canada. Well, it might have been called O Canada. I don't know if it really had a name per se, but it was written in 1880. And the reason it was written was at that time, a poet and it was actually, he was a judge. Keep that in mind because another judge will come into play here at another point. There's a lot of judges involved in this story. But the lieutenant governor of Quebec commissioned a judge who happened to also be a poet to write a hymn, a song, a hymn, to be played for the National Congress of French Canada, the Congrès National de Canadien Français. That was in 1880. The music had already been written by a music teacher and they needed a song, the words to go with it to be played at the National Congress of French Canada. And they were going to initially hold a competition, but they ran out of time. So they just went to this judge and they, who happened to be a poet and said, Hey, can you scribble some words down and literally make it sing? And so he did. Now there was a number of drafts and, and on and on and on, but 1880 on June 24, not July 1st, June 24 at a, at the Pavilion de Patineur in the city of Quebec, O Canada with the French words, the original French words was first performed. Nothing to do with, this was not an all of Canada anthem, which is the first part that I find really interesting in this. This was not initially written to be an anthem for all of Canada. It was written for the Quebec Congress. The words, and again, this is, the interesting part here is the words that are so different. The French words have largely stayed the same. Here's the French words with the translation. Now, you know the French words, right? Oh, Canada, terror de nos aïeux, you know those words, right? And again, I think a lot of people think, oh, that's just the English words translated into French. Not quite so much. Here is, and I'm not going to do the whole French thing because I can fake a French accent for a few words, but eventually you're going to catch on to me, and so I won't do that. But I will tell you, I will translate what the French version, again, that's the O Canada, Terre de nos aïeux, ton français, de fleur en gloria, all that. Here's what the French words actually say for O Canada. O Canada, land of our forefathers, thy brow is girt with glorious flowerlets, for thy arm knows how to bear the sword. It knows how to bear the cross. Thy history is an epic of the most brilliant exploits. And thy valor, tempered with faith, will protect our hearts and our rights. Will protect our hearts and our rights. That is the first verse of the French version of O Canada. Nothing like the version we sing, right? Nothing like it. Which again caught me off guard. I had never really considered that these were not at all the same words, but let me continue because there are actually four verses of the French O Canada. Again, I will not sing you or read you even all the French. I will tell you what the translation is. 
By the way, before I do that, you will notice that the French version is far more almost religious in tone. Keep in mind that once upon a time, Quebec was very, very Catholic. And so when you're talking about it knows how to bear the cross and, and thy valor tempered with faith. This is a, this is a quite a, it was a hymn, remember it was, and it was quite a religious song still is. So the French version, I told you the first verse, second verse, again, translated to English from what the French, if they were going to sing on, because we only ever sing the first verse, but here's what the second verse says under the eye of God near the great river, the Canadian grows in hope. He was born from a proud race. Blessed was his cradle. Heaven holds his destiny in this new world, always guided by its light. He will keep the honor of his flag. He will keep the honor of his flag. Verse 3. From his patron, precursor of the true God, which is referring, this is me adding this, uh, i.e., it says from St. John the Baptist. From his patron, precursor of the true God, he has a halo of fire. Enemy of tyranny, but full of loyalty. He wants to keep in harmony his proud liberty. And by the effort of his genius, on our ground, the truth is seated. On our ground, the truth is seated. Verse 4. Sacred love of throne and altar, fill our hearts with your immortal breath. Amongst this race of strangers, our guide is the law. Let us be a brotherly people under the yoke of the faith, and let us repeat, like our fathers, the victorious cry for Christ and the King, the victorious cry for Christ and the King. Hands up if you had ever heard those verses, first of all, but even the English translation, very, very different from what we sing. So, that is... The French version hasn't changed a whole lot. That was largely as written in the first verse was what they sang back in 1880 when this first got started. But in 1901, the Duke of Cornwall and the future King George V was coming to Toronto. And so they decided, somebody, I'm not really sure who, but somebody decided, well, we should have something to sing. And someone had those that music... And so they came up with a bunch of words in English that could be sung. This was the Richardson version from 1901, which was, excuse me, which was published in 1906 and went like this. This is the, Eng- the original English words to O Canada, which I think you'll be surprised again when we go back to the idea of whether or not we can ever tinker with the words because we have to hold on to tradition. Here's the very original. O Canada, our father's land of old, thy brow is crowned with leaves of red and gold. Beneath the shade of the holy cross, thy children own their birth. No no stains thy glorious annals gloss since valor shield thy hearth. Almighty God, on thee we call. Defend our rights, forfend this nation's thrall. Defend our rights, forfend this nation's thrall. Lisa, when was the last time you were just having a chat with someone and dropped in the word forfend as part of your conversation? Gotta say, never. 
I don't even, I don't even know what that means. I don't even, forfend. I'll have to look that one up later. Okay, so there is, that was the, um, that was the that was the verse that we came up with the original Canadian the original pardon me the original English version of O Canada, but things change, and a little later on, they decided to have a contest to come up with new lyrics, and they got over three hundred and fifty submissions. It was a Collier's Weekly National Anthem competition, and they wanted something a little bit different. And Mrs. Mercy E. Powell McCullough came up with the winner. And here's what she came up with. Oh, Canada. Now this is the, this is, again, we're going through time. This is a new version. So tradition, I'm not sure. Oh, Canada, in praise of thee, we sing from echoing hills, our anthems proudly ring with fertile plains and mountains grand with lakes and rivers clear eternal beauty Thou dost stand throughout the changing year. Lord God of hosts, we now implore, bless our dear land this day and evermore. Bless our dear land this and evermore. Still not sounding a whole lot like the O Canada that we sing today. Then we get to the new version. And I don't even have in front of me here. Let me see if I can find it. I'm not even sure what year... We get to, nope, I don't even have a year here, but it came later on than that. Then a new version was written by Ewing Bucon, or Buchan, I'm not sure, B-U-C-H-A-N, a bank manager in Vancouver. This was particularly popular, apparently, out in the West Coast. I mean, if Quebec's going to have their own French version, then Vancouver and the folks out there decided they were going to push for this one. Here's the new version. O Canada, our heritage, our love. Thy word, thy worth we praise all other lands above. From sea to sea, throughout their length, from pole to borderland, at Britain's side, whate'er betide, unflinchingly we'll stand. With hearts we'll sing, God save the king, guide then one umpire wide, do we implore, and prosper Canada from shore to shore. There's not one line in there that we stuck with. There's not one line that's been sung, I don't think, so far that exists in the modern version, or at least the version that we know well enough. But then, then we get to Robert Stanley Weir. Now, I'm going to put Lisa right on the spot here. Lisa, why is Robert Stanley Weir important besides the fact that he wrote the version of O Canada that we know today? That was the only reason I had. (laughs) Because guess where Robert Stanley Weir was from? Hamilton? He was from Hamilton. The guy who wrote the lyrics that essentially, for the most part, that we now know is a Hamiltonian. Many of you know that. Some of you are going, really? Yes, really. He was a Hamiltonian. And I said to you a few minutes ago, remember the fact that the first, the first French version written in 1880 was written by a judge slash poet. Guess what Robert Weir was? He was a judge. There are judges popping up all over the place in this story. So uh, for the 300th anniversary of the founding of Quebec City, they decided that they needed a new version and Robert, or maybe he did. I'm not sure. Somebody decided there needed to be a new, again, version of O Canada. Now, 
I go back one more time to the idea that there is nothing that we have seen between 1880 and now when this is being written around 1916, between 1914 and 1916, it has changed completely. We're talking 40 years, and this anthem has never stayed the same for more than a few years. Here is what Robert Weir wrote. You might be familiar with this one. O Canada, our home and native land, true patriot love in all thy sons' command, with glowing hearts we see thee rise, the true north strong and free. From far and wide... Oh, sorry. Let me back up. I jumped ahead of myself. O Canada, our home and native land, true patriot love, thou dost in us command. We see thee rising, fair dear land, the true north strong and free, and stand on guard, O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. O Canada... O Canada, O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. Then you get to the second and third and fourth verses. You didn't know that there were going to be four verses, correct? Have you ever sung more than one verse of O Canada? No? Well, there are. There are four verses. So we heard the original one. Now, I'm not going to go back and tell you what the... Well, I will. Why not? Because finally... It got changed one more time, or at least tweaked a little bit, to what we have now. And I'll give you the full four-verse treatment of where we are today. O Canada, our home and native land, true patriot love in all thy sons' command. With glowing hearts we see thee rise, the true north strong and free. From far and wide, O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. God keep our land glorious and free. O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. You know that part, right? Well, here's verse 2. Thank you to Robert Stanley Weir of Hamilton, Ontario, Canada for this. O Canada, verse 2. O Canada, where pines and maples grow, great prairies spread and lordly rivers flow. How dear to us thy broad domain from east to western sea Thou land of hope for all who toil, thou true north, strong and free. God, keep our land glorious and free. O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. Verse 3. O Canada, beneath thy shining skies may stalwart sons and gentle maidens rise to keep thee steadfast through the years from east to western sea, our own beloved native land, our true north, strong and free. God, keep our land glorious and free. O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. Finally, verse 4. Ruler supreme, who hearest humble prayer, hold our dominion within thy loving care. Help us to find, O God, in thee a lasting rich reward, as waiting for the better day we ever stand on guard. God, keep our land glorious and free. O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. couple things just before we wrap up with this. First of all, again, it is very difficult to make the case that we can never tinker with the words, even though I tend to be a traditionalist, or I like to believe I am, it's very difficult to argue for tradition when the anthem has changed this many times. It's not exactly like we are holding firm to the original construct. We've changed it many, many, many times. That's the first thing. But the second thing about this that I find really interesting, and some people are going to hate this. Some people are going to love it. Some people are going to couldn't care less. But the idea that we get into a discussion oftentimes in this country about the place of 
religion in the place of other things. Listen to the original French and listen to even the other verses of what O Canada is. When you go back to when these things were written again, back about a hundred, well, this was written 1916, so you're talking about a hundred years ago. There is a strong, strong, strong religious component to this. The idea that when some people say, no, we're, you know, there's no, the, the idea that somehow religion was involved in the early days of Canada or in all, the, clearly that was the case. These anthems are hymns. They are songs, they're anthems, but they are hymns. And there is a strong religious component to this. Go back and read it again if you somehow miss that part. But it's very, very interesting if we are, as times have changed, some people are going to say this may sound like it's a little outdated. Yes, perhaps, but it also shows, I think, the thought process of those who were here a hundred years ago, long before we were here. It's just an interesting thing to, to grasp. Could you imagine today if somebody came forward with a verse of our national anthem and they proposed that we were going to go with ruler supreme who hearest humble prayer, hold our dominion within thy loving care, help us to find, O God, in thee a lasting rich reward, and on and on. It is um, it's beautiful words. I don't think we'd be, I don't think a lot of people would be saying they'd be okay with that today. They probably don't know what the verses are. I hope we never change it. There is history to it. There you go. Who knew there were that many verses of O Canada? And who knew that the French one and the English one were so vastly different? Nothing. The only thing they have in common is the words O Canada. Really. The rest is, hmm, you're on your own. Just remember. If you're going to take nothing else away from this, the words from O Canada were written by a guy from Hamilton. Just remember that this weekend. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.